Our scripture reading this evening is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, like uh, Becca said, my name is Jonathan Keenan, and I'm the campus minister uh, with RUF at, at UCSB, and it is, it is good to be with you again. I was here uh, pre-pandemic, um, and it is good to see many of your faces, and for those who are watching online, it is, it is good that you're joining us. Um, thank you. Anytime I have the opportunity um, to get in front of a church that loves and supports RUF, I just I want to take a couple of moments and just to say thank you. Uh, we are thoroughly grateful for your partnership with us in the mission and ministry of, of RUF. Very thankful for Tim and um, his, the way in which he has advocated for us, um, not just at UCSB, but at USC and UCLA. And so um, it, it really does mean the absolute world to us knowing that the way is, is praying for us and partnering with us and that when you are partnering with us, um, you are actually making a huge impact in the lives of students at UCSB. And I wish I had time to tell you of some of the encouraging things that have happened. Um, and, and hopefully, um, I think the, the, the blog for this week was a, a somewhat of a little bit of an update. I got the thumbs up back there. And so you can kind of read some encouraging things from, from what's happened in the life of our ministry. But thank you. Um, the way for, for your, your love and your care for us in, in the ministry of RUF. Uh, with that being said, we are going to consider the passage that was um, just read, Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you can kind of keep it open um, to that place. Don't know if you're familiar with uh, the writer Donald Miller. Um, he wrote a, a very kind of famous book a couple of, many, many years ago called Blue Like Jazz. But um, a couple of years ago, he wrote another book on, on kind of relationships called Scary Close. And uh, in the book, kind of early on, he, he tells a story about how he was away on kind of like a writing project where he was uh, working on another book, and he was going to be in isolation for about a month or so. And uh, he was recently engaged, and so his fiance came to visit him. And when she came to visit him, uh, she's kind of, uh, she's asking him, like, how is it that you could spend just so much time alone, um, not interacting with anyone? Like, she's like, I just don't get it. Like, how can you do that? And this is what Donald Miller said. He said, I thought about it, and I told her something that I'd learned about myself in the year I spent pursuing her. He said, I learned that my default mode was to perform. 
Even in small groups, I feel like I have to be on. He says, but when I'm alone, my energy comes back. When I'm alone, I don't have to perform for anyone. A couple pages later, he writes this. He says, it's better when you have somebody to go home to and to talk with, somebody who is more in love with you than impressed by you. He says, it's so great to go home to someone who is way more in love with you than impressed by you. Now, I resonate with that, and I would imagine for many of us, you probably resonate with that as well, because I think for many of us, our default mode is to perform. Like the treadmill of incessantly trying to impress people. We're constantly performing. And when we're on that kind of treadmill of performance, of, of trying to impress people, what it's subtly saying about ourselves is that we have in some ways despaired of being loved for who we actually are. And here's what I want us to think about tonight. The God who made you. The God who has redeemed you by the blood of his son is way more in love with you. He loves you way more than he is impressed by you. And that is really good news. Think about it. The great joy that is flowing from Jesus' heart comes when we're able to drop the act and stop performing and come to him. Like absolute joy floods his heart because he wants you. Like you and all of your personality, you and all your ethnicity, like you even in all your sin and failures, you and all your doubt and cynicism, he wants you. I mean, this is what he actually prays in John 17, where, he's, where he says, Father, I pray that those that you have given to me would also be with me. So the, the very natural flow of Jesus' heart towards you tonight is that he he wants you, and he wants you to know that he loves you way more than he is impressed by you. Now, where do we see that? Well, before we consider our passage, let me pray for us and ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, we do pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts tonight would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we do pray, Jesus, uh, that you would become more beautiful in our hearts tonight and more believable so that we would entrust more of ourselves to you and your grace and your mercy 
and your love. So would you come by your Holy Spirit and speak to us? For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, um, to kind of give a little context, is to highlight the fact that Jesus is the definitive high priest who accomplished for us, for his people, what his people could not accomplish on their own. That Jesus came as, as the definitive high priest and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And there's this, and the whole book of Hebrews is just constantly um, playing that note over and over again. And there's this actual refrain that says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And it was in the passage that we read that he, seated, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And what that signifies, what the author of Hebrews is conveying to us is that what Jesus accomplished for us not only was it completed, but it was absolutely thorough, never to be repeated again. That what Jesus accomplished is actually effectual. It's finished. And so Jesus, as the definitive high priest, he, he bridges the gap between God and humanity. He reconnects heaven and earth. And the question is why? Like, why would Jesus do for us what we could not do for ourselves? And the author of Hebrews very plainly tells us, he says that the reason why Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves is because it was for the joy that was set before him. Therein, the very heart of Jesus, what naturally flows out of his heart, is a joy that was set before him. In other words, the sacrificial work of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension is deeply connected to the very joy that was set before him. Now, I think for most of us, we have a hard time believing that. I think for many of us, we think that Jesus begrudgingly came to earth as a man, lived under the curse of the law perfectly, took the sacrifice of our sin on himself. We think that when Jesus did what he did for us, he did it begrudgingly. Now, just think about your own life for a second. And when you think about Jesus' thoughts towards you and your life, is joy at the top of that list? And what I want to do tonight is, is if you're here and, and perhaps you kind of doubt or you're cynical that, that there was actually joy before Jesus in his sacrificial work, I kind of want us to, to think about that, and I want us to look at kind of this passage in two different ways. I want to look at the fears that are before us and the joy that's before him. The fears before us and then the joy that's before him. So first, the, the fears 
before us. Look again at verse 1. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the author of Hebrews comes and he lays out that the Christian life, and it's a very simple metaphor, is like a race. He says, in this race that's set before us, there are things that are going to weigh us down and there's going to be things or sin that's going to entangle us. There's going to be things that weigh us down and there's sin that is going to entangle us. Now, if for many of us our default mode is to perform in order to impress then from this place are all sorts of fears and all sorts of sins that so easily entangle us. I mean, think about the desire to be liked. We constantly are walking around, or maybe I'll say I'm constantly walking around, and you can apply this to yourself, in kind of a perpetual audition um, to be liked, to be well thought of, whether that is with my friends or my own spouse or even my own kids. I I told someone recently, I hope that when my kids grow up, that they just like me (laughs) and don't hate me. Or whether that is an audience before God where you're wondering if God, when he looks at your life, if he actually likes you, is proud of you, or the audience perhaps you're performing for is just yourself. And this is for religious and irreligious alike. Religious people, this is what we do around um, thinking about our relationship with God, wondering, does he think well of me? But irreligious people walk around thinking, Do my moral sensibilities align with the current cultural climate? Am I going to be on the right side of history? Do I believe the right things? I mean, think about the weight of fear. Many of our fears have certain weight. The fear of mediocrity. fear of just being average. And I would imagine that this pandemic that we have and are currently still living through has probably exposed in some places of your life those questions of, do what I do right now, does it matter? Is there, is there purpose? And so there's this kind of fear of being average and having no real purpose, and it weighs on you. Or the fear of being fake, exposed as a fraud, whether that has to do with secret struggles that you have never shared with anyone. Or as Donald Miller saying, always having to be on in order to hide your true self. Fear of being ugly. And I'm not just talking about like a physical aspect, but a moral ugliness. 
fear of discomfort or persecution, the fear of, of not having enough or not being enough. These fears weigh us down and they actually play into how we interact with Jesus. Think about it. If you're a Christian, I can almost guarantee you felt weighed down by the fact that you think Jesus draws more joy and delight by your activity and labor for him. So you fear that you're not doing enough for him and his kingdom. Or think about how that fear plays into your interaction with Jesus, the fear of being exposed. You're afraid that Jesus is more frustrated and flustered by your secret sins and you constantly coming back for fresh forgiveness and um, renewed pardon for the same thing over and over again. You fear that Jesus doesn't love you, so you hide trying to impress him. But to the person who's not religious, these fears run the gamut in your own life too. Think about it. The cancel culture is real. If you're not on the right side of the cultural, moral majority, there is a great fear that you're going to be shamed or shunned or completely discarded. Elizabeth Brunig, uh, she's a writer and essayist, she, she tweeted this a couple of months ago. She says, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. She's looking out in the, the culture that we live in, and she's saying, this environment, it's unsustainable where, you, where we constantly demand atonement, but we disdain any idea of forgiveness or reconciliation. So there's this fear of being canceled, of, of being cut off, isolated, for not believing the right things or saying the right things. So these fears run the gamut for both the religious and the irreligious. But alongside these fears that come and weigh us down into this race, there's also sins that so easily entangle us. Now, I just want to think about one sin. I think a sin that all of us can identify with, and that is the sin of pride. We so often believe that we are capable of navigating life on our own. That we somehow believe that we have the resources or the intellectual capacity or the emotional strength to make it on our own without any help. In other words, we can tend to think too highly of ourselves or our resources or our own capacity. We tend to think that we should be better than what we are. And so our sinful pride actually prevents us from coming to Jesus. Think about it. And this runs in two different directions. We either think that our sin is not that big of a deal, and so we don't come to Jesus with it, or we think it, it's so great that Jesus is unable to deal with it. And both of those places come from a posture 
of pride. And so the author of Hebrews is coming and he's inviting us tonight to lay aside the fears that weigh us down. To lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us so that we become free and are able to persevere and endure in the Christian life. And the question is, is how do we do that? Well, we need to understand and believe, perhaps believe again, the joy that is set before Him. The way in which we lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us is to understand and believe the joy that was set before Jesus. Look again at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Thomas Goodwin, uh, 17th century theologian, he um, was reflecting and thinking about just Jesus and his heart. And he wrote this. He said, Christ's own joy and comfort and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by what? How would you answer that? He's reflecting, he's thinking, okay, Jesus' joy and happiness and comfort and glory, they're increased, they're enlarged by This is what he says. They are enlarged by him showing mercy and grace in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Christ's own joy and happiness is enlarged and increased when he shows mercy and grace in our sin and failures. That it is enlarged and increased when we come to Him with our fears that weigh us down and our sin that so easily entangles us. It increases when we come to Him with all the things that entangle us and weigh us down. That what naturally flows out of the heart of Jesus is this joy when his children actually come to him with the things that plague them. That his heart increases to show us mercy and grace. Dane Ortland, in his fabulous book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, um, he illustrates this point by saying, imagine a doctor goes into some indigenous area of the world where he has discovered that there is this, again, there's no relation to the pandemic. So take that disclaimer for what it is. This is only for illustration purposes. 
But he discovers in this indigenous place there is this contagious disease that is just spreading throughout. And this doctor comes with all of his medical equipment, with all the antibiotics, with all the resources. It costs them nothing, and he shows up, and none of the sick come for help. And Dane says, how do you think the doctor would feel when all of a sudden one person shows up and gets the antibiotic and gets treated for the disease? And then another comes, and then another comes. He goes, what happens in the heart of the doctor? It's nothing more than joy. Now he says, imagine if those people weren't strangers, but actually family members. How much more joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. So the first thing I want us to understand and believe about the joy and happiness of Jesus towards you tonight is this. He does not get flustered or frustrated when you come to him for fresh forgiveness or renewed pardon or with distress and need and emptiness. For that was the whole reason why he came. He came not for the healthy but for the sick. He wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because that is who he is. That is what naturally flows out of the heart of Jesus towards you tonight. Dane Ortland actually says that, that Jesus' incarnation, that, the, 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 that he drew near to us in his incarnation so that his joy and ours might rise and fall together. And Thomas Goodwin goes so far as to say that Jesus actually derives more joy in showing mercy to us than we do when we receive it. Which Jesus is just living out a biblical principle that it's what? Better to give than to receive. That Jesus' joy, he derives more joy in giving out his mercy and grace more so than we do when we receive it. In other words, when you come to Jesus for mercy and love and help in your anguish, in your doubts, in your sin, in your cynicism, in your anger, in your heartache, in your sorrow, when you come to Him, you're actually going into the flow of His heart. But when you continually live in the shadow of the things that weigh you down, the things that so easily entangle you, you are actually opposing the very heart of Jesus that is laid out for you tonight. This is what Jesus loves to do. This is why he came. This is his very heart. How do we know that? It's because of the cross. The joy that was set before him. What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? It was the joy of seeing his people forgiven and accepted. The joy of seeing people riddled with their own fear and guilt. People riddled with their own sin and shame. 
finding forgiveness and acceptance. The joy on the other side of the cross was knowing his people, whom he loves with an everlasting love, have been cleansed and forgiven and brought into the very kingdom of God. For my skeptical friends, the beautiful thing about Christianity is there is atonement with forgiveness. I mean, do you know of any other worldview that says, come with all the ways in which you have messed up your life and your relationships, with all the ways in which your pride has wreaked havoc in your relationships, all the ways in which perhaps you have condescended and judged others by how they look or what they believe, all the ways in which you have perhaps harbored anger and resentment and hatred for people who despise you. And what you will find is a God who not only welcomes you by His grace, but then offers you forgiveness, not at your expense, but at His and then crowns you with a love from everlasting to everlasting. That God, in a sense, would cancel His Son for all the ways in which we have contributed to the fallenness of this world so that we might know the joy that was set before Him was us after all. Like His joy has always been you. It has always been you. That's the joy that was set before him, was you. It's why he did what he did. It was for you. So what do we do with that? Two things, and I'll close. First, we must remain childlike in our faith towards Jesus. Um, I have four boys at home. I have a seven, a five, a three, and a four-month-old. There's lots of testosterone in our house. Lots of wrestling, lots of loud noises that start really early in the morning and don't stop until late in the evening. Um, but the other day, my number three, um, Knox, he was uh, wrestling with his older brothers and got hurt. And instinctively, he ran and yelled, what? Mama. Ran straight to my wife, her name's Morgan, crying. She picked him up sat him in in her lap. She embraced him. She consoled him. She wiped his tears. And then she sent him back into the wrestling pit. And here's the thing. Childlike faith, what Jesus is after, is for us to know that he is the only one who can comfort us in our pain, who can deal with us in our heartache, He's the only one who can actually wipe the tears from our eyes and keep us enduring in this life, this this Christian life. You will know that the grace and mercy of Jesus is working on you when you instinctively run 
to Jesus rather than from him. We need to remain childlike in our faith. Like my three-year-old running to the only person he knows who can fix him and his sadness and his pain. That's the first thing. Have childlike faith. Run to Jesus with your fears, the things that weigh you down, the sin that so easily entangles you, and know that what enlarges his heart, the joy that enlarges is when you come to him so he can show you grace and mercy. But the second thing is this. Don't neglect each other. Jesus is the head and we are his body. When any part of the body is hurting, the whole body feels it. I mean, we have felt that acutely this week and with, with what's going on in Afghanistan. When any part of the body is hurting, the rest of the body feels it. And what do we do when a part of our own body is hurting? We nurse it back to health. We bandage it, protect it. We give it time to heal. But we are not only a part of Jesus, but we're also part of each other. And there is something beautiful that happens when we reflect the same care to one another that Jesus has displayed to us. When a relationship that has been weighed down because of your own insecurities and all of a sudden it is lifted with forgiveness and repentance, your joy increases. When your friends know that you are accessible and approachable and understanding and gracious, so much so that they come and disclose their struggles and their secret sins, and your joy increases. When you're able to help carry a burden for a friend that they cannot carry themselves, Paul says when you do that, you actually fulfill the very law of Christ, and your joy increases. What we find in the Christian community is this reality. It becomes a community where you are loved instead of having to impress. Isn't that a community that you want to be a part of? Well, that's the community that Jesus is inviting you into tonight. A community, a body, where you are loved way more than he is impressed by you. Don't you want that? Consider that invitation from Jesus tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Father, it really does make no sense that you would love us with an everlasting love, that your heart actually is enlarged and increased when you come and you show us new mercies, fresh grace, when you remind us of your love, when we come to you for fresh forgiveness and renewed pardon, that all of that, it actually increases your joy. And so I pray for my friends here at The Way that they may come to see you and your kindness, that they may come to experience your love and grace and mercy in ways that they have yet to experience, and that this church 
will continue to be a community that cares for one another in the way in which you have cared for us personally. Equip them, enable them, and Jesus, may we go out and may we be, be great ambassadors for you and your grace and your mercy. For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.